Hello, I'm Christopher Gassan, and welcome back to Ireland's Edge. On today's episode, what we know now. Why did different truths dominate at different times of the COVID-19 pandemic? From hand washing and sanitising to ventilation and vaccination, medical knowledge and public health advice have changed considerably over the last 18 months. Yet even as we have learned more, outdated advice and habits have persisted. So did the science fail us, or have we failed the science? Orla Hegarty is Assistant Professor of Architecture at University College Dublin, and Eva McLeisicht is Professor of Genetics at Trinity College Dublin. Both have been prominent voices in Ireland's public scientific debates over responses to the pandemic. At the National Gallery of Ireland, Orla and Aoife spoke with Ireland's Edge curator Maureen Kelleher about what we know now. I'm joined this evening by two women who have been very generous throughout this entire pandemic in sharing their insights and their wisdom and their intelligence. And they are very generously have come to be with us here this evening. I'm going to start in the fine tradition of Ireland's Edge, Orla, with some storytelling. And I'm going to ask you to tell us the story of why the advice changed from COVID is not airborne in March 2020 to COVID is airborne. What was behind that? Why does it matter? Why did it matter then? Why does it still matter now? Well, it's, it's a really interesting question and it would seem like the simplest thing um, if, some, if a pandemic is spreading, a virus is passing between two people. Um, it, it has to move through the air. Um, uh, it has to travel in some way. Uh, the air is what we breathe. Um, but from the beginning, we were told, I suppose, that it, it, settled, it settled very quickly um, and that people would be contaminated from their hands or from surfaces. And we've been doing an awful lot of, of cleaning. Um, and then uh, gradually people started wearing masks, maybe not from the beginning, uh, so much in the Western world. Um, and then over time, we have gradually adopted it more. And uh, I think what's interesting is that although people are very engaged with the science of vaccines and the vaccination program uh, and that has come uh, um, along so far in, in a year more than our expectations people haven't really engaged with the science of transmission of how the virus moves between two people and that science has been moving as fast as the vaccine program um, with enormous understanding of the interplay between the chemistry of the air the physics of its movement the architecture, the engineering of all of that, uh, and even the meteorology and, and how all these things are environmental. And that really the, the, the root of the pandemic is environmental. So although we are very focused on the biology of individuals and how they are treated and how their immunity can be adjusted to deal with this, uh, we've been very slow to deal with the environmental side. Um, and I suppose for that to become mainstream policy has taken a very long time, particularly in our institutions. Why? Um, perhaps on one level, uh, we had an emergency medical response at the beginning and, and uh, structures were set up um, to deal with an, an, a medical emergency and to protect our hospitals and our health services. Um, and maybe we have stayed in that emergency response rather than looking longer term than the next month or the next two months. Um, I think I, I think it's it's obvious, particularly maybe across the English speaking and the Western world, um, that our institutional response hasn't hasn't had the governance structures to deal with this. So the science hasn't failed us. 
um, uh, on lots of levels, the science has been incredibly strong and there are so many people around the world uh, working and collaborating in new ways on this. I don't think the public have failed us. Uh, people have done everything that was asked of them and more and people have made enormous sacrifices personally and socially and in their income and businesses and everything else. Um, and uh, yet having those two strengths, we seem to have have had the weakness in the decision-making process, how we have drawn together the science and communicated it to people, um, and how we haven't really got the message across to people in really simple ways how to protect themselves, because this isn't new. We've, we've been here in history before. So this science of transmission, um, some of it decades, some of it centuries old, some of it having influenced the design of the building that we're sitting in right now, how did some of that come to be forgotten? Is that the curse, the generational curse of we forget what we don't live? But as we came into this pandemic, some of the measures which I think you're suggesting, Orla, that if we had adopted them earlier, could have helped us maybe frame this in a less binary way between lockdown and free from restriction. What are the types of measures that, if we had understood that science of tra transmission and embraced it earlier, how did we forget it? And now that we have reaffirmed it, what does it mean for what we do next? Well, when we go back into history, it's very obvious architecture has always been about public health. The cathedrals had high ceilings because there was lots of people and you needed a large volume of air so that people could be in that space safely. Um, you moved then into even Florence Nightingale redesigning hospitals for cross-ventilation and for space around beds and how the uh, the science of, of all of that influenced the fabric and the form of the buildings. Um, and right up into the TB era, era in Ireland and how we designed our schools and our homes and our hospitals, that was all known. Um, I think somewhere along the line, several things have happened. I think medical training has been quite limited in some of this into uh, incorrectly defining how diseases spread. We've also had, I suppose, we've had antibiotics and we, we tend to rely on pharmaceuticals now for disease rather than prevention. Mm. Uh, so public health has been diminished in some way. Um, and then we've moved into the modern era of the oil crisis and then the climate crisis, where we have have compromised the air quality and the public health side of our buildings in the interests of energy saving. So um, rather than thinking of contained spaces, almost like a fish tank, where we need to filter the water if people are going to be in it, uh, we've been sealing our spaces and engineering our spaces. And then you layer on top of that that we are flying around the world in sealed aeroplanes. We are travelling a lot globally. Um, and that our cities have become quite, quite dense. Uh, you know, people are using small spaces in elevators. They're living in smaller spaces. Um, and all of these compromises, I suppose, was setting up where we were very vulnerable to a new disease coming into that setting. And rather than responding, I suppose, in terms of how is it spreading and where is it spreading, we have, we have gone for close everything and isolate everybody rather than identifying that it's actually limited, very quite limited in how it's spreading. And, and that even in Ireland we've seen the, the deaths we've had, unfortunately, have been in very limited amounts of buildings and settings 
where environmentally we can see what's going on. Um, so we can, we can lever this science. We can open every building safely if we lever some of the scientific knowledge. And, and yet we've been very slow to adopt, adopt that or to use these strategies. Um, and maybe now, I suppose, people waited for the vaccine programme. It hasn't been as straightforward as people thought, some people thought it would be. Um, and we can't, you know, vaccines alone can't do this. We need a prevention plan as well. And we need that prevention plan to look to the future because we will have variants, we will have future pandemics. Um, but also people's general health is compromised by poor air quality in buildings. Um, children don't perform well at school. Elderly people are more ill in, in care. Um, people in hospitals don't recover as well. Um, so there's lots of other reasons why we need to think uh, more clearly about this. Um, and maybe it's because the air is invisible. We, we don't think of it. We think of foodborne diseases and we think of waterborne diseases and we have really clear health strategies for those and we have institutions who make sure our food is safe um, and yet we have people dying in buildings now where we don't go in if it was waterborne we would be testing the water we're not going in to see what happened and what went wrong so if i may be asking you to join this conversation you came into this pandemic as a geneticist with a certain set of training and disciplines in the toolbook. You have always been um, to the forefront of science communications in Ireland, probably have taken that as a responsibility very early in your own career. But what, was, what have you noticed that was different about the communication, the interpretation as as Orla has said, of the multidisciplinary learning that was going on around and trying to bring that to a more lay audience who, Orla, you used the words there, thinking clearly, trying to think through the strategies. What was different in this communication of science versus any before? Yeah, well, previously, I suppose my main experience would have been... Um, more to do with if a new interesting piece of science has come out, you know, a new discovery, something we've done in Trinity ourselves or something somewhere else that's a big news splash that, um, that people want to talk about. And I would have done my bit then to kind of explain it. And it would have been a very um, congenial kind of environment, you know, uh, there's a nice new piece of science and they'd ask me to explain it. And, you know, it'd be like, oh, that's very nice. And you're given time to speak and all that kind of thing. And what I experienced in the last year is more um, an adversarial um, environment where um, it's like things that you say are, are challenged in a way that is not normal. I mean, in terms of science, it's totally appropriate to challenge things. Um, and it's totally appropriate to ask, how do you know that? You know, is that a reliable piece of information? And, you know, is the evidence really robust? But this was more of a, you know... Um, a very kind of political dismissive uh, attitude, which I was not at all used to. And so I had to learn how to communicate in that environment where, you know, you might be cut off at any moment and you need to quickly get your message across. And, you know, as well, um, needing to preempt um, some of the kind of misinformation that was going around, you know, having to communicate in the context of a misinformation campaign, which I never really understood why it's there but you know in terms of people you know 
some people trying to say there isn't even a pandemic at all, which is uh, a rather extraordinary thing. And then um, misinformation about how transmission is occurring, about what are the, the necessary measures. And, you know, so that's been, it has been an, a challenge really to learn again how to communicate difficult material and, you know, uh, technical scientific material, um, but as quickly as possible and in adversarial environment it has been it's been it's been challenging but you know I find it important I think we're all seeing over the last year and a bit that the decisions have been so consequential and um, you know as Orla mentioned the decision making process has not really been evidence-based not at all it's been rarely evidence-based and that has been a huge frustration because when you understand what's going on you can see that some of these decisions are going to have very bad consequences that we end up paying for for months then and um, you know so that has been the motivation really but it has been definitely a different experience than any communication I would have done before. And in terms of a, a general, say, as, as we approach decisions that we're not, I'm saying that we're going to have to make, but that we're making as we live through a climate crisis, as we look at the vaccine rollout now, less so in this country, but more so across in, in some other parts across the world, is that scepticism of science and the scientific process the as you said there debate is entirely normal natural welcome questioning part of the part of the process um where is is there a change or or is is there a way in which the the politically the questions are being refracted differently in a you are both very prolific on twitter in a is is there a Twitter world of that and is there an other world of that in, in terms of just your communication in one form versus another? Um, I mean, there, is, there does appear to be a kind of a politicisation of, of uh, viewpoints with regard to science, you know, that you'll see that certain opinions seem to be received as a package, you know, a collection of opinions that have to go together. So once you accept one of them, you accept them all. And um, I don't fully understand the motivations behind that, um, but it does seem to be happening. So, you know, one thing we didn't experience here in Europe so much, but it has happened in the US, has been a politicization of just the very idea of evolution. And that's the area I work in. And so I haven't had to face into that um, very much, but it is just the, the whole idea of evolution as a process and evolution as fact. And, you know, when you're, when you're discussing something in that context, it really changes where you have to start the conversation. And, you know, so that has happened with, um, that's happened with many aspects of the, the pandemic in terms of, you know, with the, the vaccines, you have um, variously, from one day to the next, I get accused of being um, somebody who's forcing vaccines on unwilling recipients to someone who's a, you know, a vaccine denier. You know, so I get, I get both of these thrown at me. And, um, you know, it seems to have been, you know, so some of these things have been strangely politicised. Whether it's, it's hard to know now for me, because I've spent most of the last year um, in very limited company, how much of it is a Twitter thing and how much of it is the rest of the world thing, because many of my interactions with the rest of the world have been uh, limited in that way in the last while. But, um I, it's quite an unwelcome thing in the sense that it's uh, a type of 
a type of aggressive challenge that is not actually a debate. So um, people who are uh, saying things where they do not actually want to hear a counter view and are not at all willing to listen to evidence. They've formed a view and there's nothing really that can shake that. And that, um, that type of attitude is very difficult because um, I find it totally pointless, in fact, to interact with people who are of that view because you're just going to get into an argument that goes nowhere and might end up in name-calling and sometimes does, you know. Not on my side, I lad, but, um, you know, that this is not going anywhere. And so I think um, we are, as you say, facing into lots of decisions that are both urgent and present, but also um, that have long-term consequences. And you mentioned climate change there as one. And this is where um, we get... This has been... One of the ways this has been twisted and politicised, I think, has been... It's been pushed onto this idea of personal responsibility. You know, climate change is happening because of what kind of car you drive or because of, you know, something something that you've chosen to do rather than it being systematic problems in the way things are organised and, you know, that things that you or I as an individual cannot control, but that require structural reforms. And um, somehow this has been... This has made it much more difficult to actually address what the real problem is. And it's been a lot of distraction, I think, from what the real problem is. And, um, you know, we're living through this pandemic. It won't be the last, as Orla said, you know, and um, there's this wonderful quote from an epidemiologist, Larry Brilliant, who said, um, outbreaks are inevitable, pandemics are optional. And, you know, it's how you react that makes the difference. So when an outbreak happens, how do you react? And you were even mentioning the idea of the knowledge we have and the knowledge we've lost. One of the things I think that we ought to be looking at is how we deal with measles. So measles is a disease, a very, very infectious disease that is endemic worldwide, but it's eliminated from Ireland and from other countries. You can, and you know, we don't need travel controls to um, control measles. We don't even need require vaccination of travellers or anything like that. What we do have is a really, really good public health system that uh, you know, has a set of rules, how to deal with this when it happens. It's all evidence-based. And if a case happens in Ireland and if there's a bit of spread, there's going to be several steps that are, that are taken. It's, it's all planned and that'll be contained again. And this is where we need to get to with this uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic. We need to get to the stage where it is something that we don't have to think about on a day-to-day basis. And I think this is a huge frustration for people. I think it's been really exhausting, actually. And I think that's a, one aspect of why people are so, um, so tired now, is actually the exhaustion of having to make so many decisions and think about so many things on a personal level that really should be taken care of at a different level, that should be at an organisational, structural level. And it would be good if we would not have to think about Uh, COVID-19 the same way we don't really have to think about measles we know what it is we know what the vaccinations is people make their decisions about the vaccines and most people go for them happily and you know it's it's a very very infectious disease that we have eliminated from a lot of countries and I'd like to see it going that way but at the moment um it's hard to even have that conversation because um as soon as you start people think you're 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 crazy and you're talking nonsense or that Following on from Aoife's point there, just in relation to there's so much we don't have to think about, mm. what would you like to see designed into the system? You've been engaged in a very rich, interdisciplinary, global conversation. 
What would you like to see be adopted here in this country? I think on a first level, we need to communicate with people. I mean, Aoife talked about the aggression. It's understandable. People are all living a trauma. Um, you know, whether we recognise that day to day or not, we are on all on some level. And, you know, it's been described as we're not all in the same boat, we're all in the same storm. Some of us are in better boats and some of us are drowning. You know, we have to start actually engaging with that because because we've this polarised thing is a little bit fear on one hand, which is, you know, panic, shut down everything. And denial then on the other hand, you know, I can't can't cope with the fear anymore. Let's pretend it's not happening. And and we, we open or we do the wrong things. Um, we have to find somewhere in between where people are empowered, you know, to know that they're not in fear all day. Um, I, I think, you know, there was a time in lockdown where people almost felt that you could you could be walking down the street or you could be in your own home and, and you could find yourself in hospital a few days later. Um, I think if we empowered people to understand the really high-risk places and we dealt with them at a structural level, in a way that gave people more confidence um, and more visibility, um, rather than than saying, you know, wash your hands, we don't know how it's spreading, that we said to people, you know, this is exactly what we understand now, and this is what we're going to do about it, and we're going to systematically, you know, not open the nightclubs now, but we are going to do this for the schools. We're going to make sure that our nursing homes and hospitals are dealt with in a certain way. We're going to protect our health. What's a certain workers. way? I think we need to uh, understand, you know, it, it's, it's like that fishbowl again, you know, if, if we're not filtering the water, um, it, can become, uh, it can become a dangerous setting. And uh, this is a very particular way this disease spreads. It's not uh, average contacts. It, it's what's called um, over-dispersed, which means that it, it, it's, it ripples along um, and it can be very manageable. Most people who catch COVID don't give it to anybody else. But when it gets into the right environment, one person can affect dozens of people. Um, and that's what we need to target so that so they can infect somebody in a car or in a bus uh, or they can go into a crowded classroom or a pub or something else. Um, if people started to understand that and then we started to make sure that we people in these buildings or these high-risk buildings are breathing clean air and not infected air. You know, we can measure things like that. Um, and we can start to, you know, very strategically um, have a lot of places open and operating normally um, and work our way through. Um, the one that I find fascinating is how Chicago dealt with, with the flu pandemic in, um, in 1918. Um, where they took a very uh, public health driven approach and they had building inspectors out and within six weeks they inspected and improved ventilation and did cleaning in all of their high risk places like the theatres and the streetcars for public transport and the cinemas and restaurants and uh, within six weeks they reopened and they didn't have a second wave of pandemic even though most American cities did have a second and a third wave. So I think we have the tools. There were no vaccines in, in 1918. Um, we, we maybe have been waiting for a certain tool and not using the ones that were at hand. Um, that accepted, we have variants now that are, that are um, highly transmittable and we're in a difficult situation at the moment because of we've seen what happened in, in other countries and we, we see the pattern. Um, we need to be very careful and take careful steps, I think. But we also need to deal with the human side, which is that fear and panic and trauma, um, so that we empower people to feel more in control day to day and not in fear, and to empower them to have as much normal life as we possibly can. You know, so if we look at two sectors, which for a lot of us denote normal life, and we have discussions and decisions upcoming on these in the next few, well, we have indoor dining 
And then we have the more distant prospect mm. for many of us of getting back on a plane again. Mm. What would constitute safe for you in those contexts in a, in a time to come? Well, we all want, we all want that. I think, I mean, that's the first place to start. You know, we actually all want very little COVID and we all want as much normality as possible. And that's why the polarised conversation sometimes misses that. We all have the same objectives here. Um, I think, uh, firstly, we need a kind of honest conversation. Um, obviously, a policy is influenced by vested interests in, in a lot of areas. And, and sometimes that is closer to the decision makers than the sciences. Um, I think we need to step back you know, acknowledge the really legitimate concerns of these sectors and people who are seeing their business and their livelihoods failing and who are worried about their own circumstances, very openly acknowledge that and support people so that they're not a barrier to fixing it. Um, and, and then we need to systematically do really careful risk assessments. You know, we have the methodologies for all of that. We do risk assessments in all sorts of places for different things. Um, we know how to sit down and brainstorm every little chink in the armour and every little gap um, so that we can start to deal with that. Um, I think Ireland also has a potential because we're an island, we really have to deal with the airline sector. And, and maybe we need to differentiate ourselves from other places and say, you know, Ireland is going to be the world leader on this, actually. We're going to take you know, a lead and set standards because we want to have our sector functioning. So um, what would safe air travel mean for... Well, I, I think first off, we need to acknowledge that it is spread um, a lot of, sorry, most of it is spread by people who don't show symptoms. Either they haven't shown them yet or they're not going to show them. Um, so we need to treat everybody as if they're infectious. Um, uh, so we need to do some screening. We need to do a lot of wearing really high quality masks when we are in close proximity. Uh, and we will, we will need to do that in close proximity for some time. We have to assume everybody is carrying the virus. Um, and we need to look at really good air filtration then and, and careful processes in the areas of crowding and where people are very close together. Um, but, but just saying, you know, this is safe, this hasn't happened before. Um, you know, we don't approach food safety or road safety in that way. You know, we don't wait for something catastrophic to react. We, we do prevention. And, and if any sector, I think, has the experience and methodology for, of that, it's the airline sector. They do checklists for absolutely everything before they fly. Um, they should be good at adopting that. And similarly, when we're looking at our tourist sector and our you know, not just for the tourists, but the rest of us like to socialise as well. Um, um, I'm sure a lot of the buildings that are available are probably low risk already, and they have been penalised as much as the high risk ones. Um, if we started to set a standard and, and actually inspect, um, and other places are doing this, um, we could, you know, immediately say to some places, you're ready to go um, or you need to reduce your occupancy or you need to open your windows or change your filtration uh, and in some other places we might be saying you need to make structural changes but the real advantage of that is that we would be saying to people when you've done this you're not going to have to close again this year you know and when you've done this if we have a new virus next year you'll be ready for it and you won't be shut for six or 12 months again you know, so it, people talk about the fear of the cost of controls. Actually, um, the cost of not dealing with controls has been really high. And it's still very uncertain. We don't know what the cost of managing the rest of this year will be. Uh, but we could quantify this. And it is independent of, of how well the vaccines work or it's independent of what variants emerge. Um, this is something that is all directly in our control and that could start immediately. And I think it would empower people who are very frustrated and 
um, you know, how, coming through a really difficult time personally, um, to feel that they do have some control over the situation. And Aoife, students, kids, classrooms, lecture halls, back to busy Trinity fields across the street from us. What does next September look like in terms of the return to a more normalised educational year? Well, I, priority for that? Well, I really, really want there to be a full, intact education year. I think it's really, it's just so unfair on our young people that their education has been disrupted. You know, you have, uh, say, somebody going into third year of secondary school hasn't had a full year of secondary school yet. I have students coming into their final year of their university degree, of a four-year degree, where they had just their first year undisrupted. And I think it's really, really important we get this right. And I think this, like what Orla says, the ventilation is so key. Um, I mean, we ought to also be doing everything we can now. We have, we have good warning. We have like good notice about the dangers of the Delta variant. We ought to be making sure we do things now, not just waiting till September. You know, so this planned reopening ought to be under proper ventilation standards, not just uh, wishful thinking and crossing the fingers or whatever. But um, I think, like Orla has said, you know, the ventilation in the educational spaces is going to be really important. And Orla and others have been really key in getting the introduction of CO2 monitors into the classrooms of our schools, which is going to be really important because then you can have confidence and you'd like to see those in every place. I personally, you know, if you go into a restaurant, you don't worry about, you don't try and inspect the kitchen before you sit down to eat because you know that there's somebody else who does that for you and it should be the same with ventilation. But we really need that. We need to make sure that um, we have good, um, well-ventilated spaces for our education for next year as well because it's so important that it's not disrupted again it's such a you know it's going to be that will, that will be the third year if it happens and that's so much in the education of any young person so yeah it's really really critical that we um, don't let things get out of control this summer that we learn what it is we need to do I mean when we have lockdowns that's the panic button you know we don't we should not be pressing the panic button at any time because we should be calmly reflecting looking at what needs to be done and taking steps to avoid disaster not reacting to a catastrophe and we've only been reacting to catastrophes so far so um you know, in terms of the next education year, the next academic year, it's, yeah, it's really important that we that it happens um, undisrupted for the students in as normal a way as possible. And as Orla says, ventilation is going to be a huge part of that because our young people won't be vaccinated in time for the uh, academic year. Thank you so much to Orla Hegarty and Aoife McLeisick for joining Mern Kelleher for that fascinating discussion at the National Gallery of Ireland. On our next episode, Shiver Quinlan speaks with writer Roisin Kybert about the weird and wild world the internet. My data, my behaviour, my connections, my behaviours, everything that makes me human Mm -hmm. is what the internet runs on Mm -hmm. and it's what gives these companies their value and it's what gives, you know, Jeff Bezos the money to build his rocket into space to escape the planet that has turned against him. To make sure that you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a South Wind Blows production and I'm Christopher Kassan. Thank you for joining us. I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge.